The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, especially the new folks. know many of you, but some of you probably don't know me. I'm, my name is Mark Nunberg, and I'm the guiding teacher here at Common Ground. Once a month, I just give a short talk on what we call dana, which is the Pali word for generosity. And uh, some of you know that the center doesn't charge for any programs or doesn't have suggested donations, and uh, you might think it's some clever scheme. But actually, it's part of a, a much more uh, subtle and beautiful practice that we're all doing to some degree everywhere in our life, and it's really nice to make it conscious. One of the things that we've learned in certain places in our life is that it's really nice to have a relationship of free giving and free receiving. Every once in a while, we're fortunate enough to have a personal relationship like that, a friendship that's really based on that free giving and receiving. It's not a business relationship where I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me, but we just find joy and loving and caring and responding to that person. It's not about what they're going to do in return. We're doing it because it feels good to love them, to show up, to listen to them, or whatever we do for them. And in the same way, we are happy to receive who they are. And when they're grumpy, we receive that. And when they're generous or kind to us, we receive that. And so, this is just another way of talking about being skillful in life, is transforming all of our relationships into relationships of free giving and receiving. Or in other words, being free in our giving and receiving. Because that's what we're doing, that's what characterizes life, is we're giving and receiving in every moment. We're projecting, we're doing something, you know. Our life is manifesting, and that manifestation is a gift to the rest of us, however pretty or not pretty it is. That is our gift, who we are, how we are in the world. That's our giving. And then, <clears throat> as an individual, we're constantly receiving this moment, which includes all of the experiences of all of those around me. I'm receiving. So... Is that giving and receiving free, or is it weighted? Is it tight, because it's a business negotiation, we're manipulating or struggling in order to get the best deal, extract the best deal from all of these relationships we have. Relationship with our work, with our family, with our friends, our relationship to our body, our relationship to our mind. We have all these different relationships, and we're strategic and manipulative, in trying to get the best deal possible from life. And of course, it's pretty easy to understand how stressful that all is, that constant struggle. So, in practice, one of the things we realize, one, is that it's stressful, and two, how it's based on a misperception. It's based on this misperception of being separate, and because of this, projected or the sense of being separate, we feel like we have to be strategic or life is going to get the better of me or this person or this relationship will get more than I'm getting. 
So even though you may think it's just like a, you know, something common ground does, not charging, it's really part of this much deeper practice. So when you come to the center, we're really practicing receiving whatever you get here, the community, the beautiful space, these wonderful ancient teachings, whatever it is you feel that you receive, practice receiving it as a free gift. Life is delivering this. It's being offered freely. And it takes practice to receive it as a free gift. It's like I we sometimes give peanuts to the squirrels in our backyard. And, you know, it's like, I mean, maybe it's my projection, but it's like they can't believe there's a peanut there when they find it. You know, it's like, is it really okay to take this? And we're like that too, you know, because there's something, somebody, I don't know why, left about two dozen bagels in the community room yesterday. You know, and it's the same thing when someone leaves something out for people to take. It's like, is it really okay? And so it's really nice, like if you're in the mode of giving, to really make sure people know this is a free gift. Please take what you want. And so, you know, at the center, as, as a leader and others of us here at the center who are leaders, we practice creating a place that's all-inclusive. Everyone's allowed to come, and it's all given freely. A free gift, no strings attached. And those of you who've been around for a while know that we don't like use guilt or even a lot of reminders, because the idea is we really want it to be experienced as a free gift. And so it's a lot of work for us as community members to receive it as a free gift. Same way it is when you experience a lot of love, a lot of unconditioned love from another human being. It's not easy to receive that as a free gift. We always wonder, like, what are they up to? What are they going to want in return? What am I getting myself into? Like, you know that feeling? I feel this way a lot. I mean, this is a neurotic pattern in my mind, like the balance. I'll, I'll be at the low end of the balance sheet and I'll have this karmic debt that I have to repay. But there isn't a karmic debt. Like if somebody is giving freely and we receive freely, that's not, there's no debt there. There's no, there doesn't have to be a trace, anything left over in that exchange or that interaction. It can just be beautiful. The person giving freely is having a beautiful experience. The person receiving freely is having a wholesome, beautiful experience. There's no debt. There's nothing left. There's nothing that needs to be fixed later. So practice that when you come to Common Ground. And then, without forcing it, if you ever feel like responding, just move to want to put money in the bowl to support the teacher's livelihood or help pay for the building or help pay for the office staff or all the other activities of the center, or just volunteer your time or practice sincerely or any way that you want to give back, let that come out of an experience of being like happy, happy to give. Not giving because you have to give, but because it makes you happy. And then experiment, like, <clears throat> how could you become even more happy? If you're giving too much, then not giving as much will make you more happy. Because maybe you're giving because you feel guilty or you're just not integrating all the different parts of your life and by giving this much you're not really able to take responsibility for other places where it just would be so natural to give. So then you need to cut back a little bit, giving too much time, giving too much money. Or maybe you're, you know, you just have, like so many of us do in different ways, 
a real fear of not having enough. <clears throat> and so you don't want to deal with it. I mean, we all have this, like, <clears throat> the people that stand at intersections asking for money or food or something. It's like, you know, it's just so interesting to trace our relationship to those experiences. And hopefully it's an evolving relationship because hopefully we're interested. We want to be interested in life, especially the sticky, uncomfortable places in life, because there's probably something we can learn about the mind in those situations. So how can we, like, be a responsible, loving, and free human being when we pull up to an intersection and there's somebody with a sign? What kind of human being, what kind of heart do we want to cultivate in that moment? Now, I'm not saying we should empty our wallets, but... What I've learned in my own life is that emptying my wallet doesn't feel right, and also not uh, willing to include what's going on in that moment, like having to close down in some way, that doesn't feel right either. So I've been experimenting for years about how I can be fully open and responsive in that moment and not feel later like I was cheated or manipulated or did something unskillful, like supporting somebody's addictive but behaviors, you know, maybe drug habit or alcohol, alcoholism or something, <clears throat> how can I respond in a way that doesn't leave a trace, that only leaves a good flavor in the heart, good taste in the heart? So I, you know, I carry protein bars. <laughs> I'm not saying that's the answer, but it's, my, it's part of my evolving relationship to that particular experience, so I can give and receive freely in that moment. And I've had some really nice regularly have really nice interactions. People seem sincerely appreciative to receive a couple protein bars. And uh, I feel really good being able to turn and connect with that person instead of being fearful of catching their eye or something. And it's the same thing here at Common Ground or everywhere in our life, you know, like how can we have a relationship that feels real, you don't, you're not ashamed of it, feels good, when it comes up in your mind, there's like a good taste there, like, yeah, I'm doing my best to show up, to respond, to receive, to give freely, to make it a beautiful part of my life. So when we think about it, it makes us happy. There's a teaching in Buddhism that I really like about, I mean, who knows about the time of death? I, I haven't met anybody, I mean, you hear stories, but I haven't personally, I don't personally know anybody who knows that experience of death. But it makes a lot of sense to me that at the time of death, the way the mind is is really important. Like if our mind is in a really fear-based, contracted state, and at the same time, the body is falling apart and dying, there's physical pain, and then there's the, the great matter of what comes next. And if, you're, if we're dealing with all that with a very tight, fear-based mind, that doesn't sound very good. And I've been around at least that handful of people when they're in the dying process and seeing them cycle through times of a lot of fear and just energetically just getting how difficult that is and times of not having a lot of fear. So one of the things in the Buddhist tradition is that one of the things that really supports us at the time of death is the cumulative flavor of our life. You know, so if we've been mean our whole life or most of our life, stingy most of our life, reactive, 
in narrow states of mind, then that those are the qualities that are going to be there at the time of death. But if we've been living our life in this free-giving, free-receiving mode, and cultivating lightness, the lightness that comes from that, and, a, and the other thing that comes from that is a real sense of trusting life, because we know that that's how you relate to life. There is a way, like, just as an operational theory, you know, like there is a way to relate in any moment with free giving and free receiving. We may not understand how to do it initially, but we hold that as a possibility. Like, even in really difficult states, you know, the times that we hope never happen to us, that maybe even in those times there's a way to give freely and receive freely. Remember, we can also give to ourselves freely. So the giving is really about the generosity or tapping into the natural generosity of the heart to take care of ourselves, to take care of others, to take care of all, take care of all things. So when we're in a difficult place, then the heart that meets that difficulty is the heart that's been cultivated over the years. So we can transform our relationship to common ground, to all things, by understanding, free giving and receiving. So that's why we decided to do it this way, not to charge, not to have suggested donations, and not to talk about money, you know, in the ways that nonprofits and other businesses talk about money with their clientele. We just don't go there because we're really interested in this other way of being, just as individuals. And so why not have the organization itself sort of walk the talk? And so far, it really works well. You know, the community, in all kinds of mysterious ways, has been able to purchase and renovate a building. We've spent, I think, close to, I think it's now about 900000 on the purchase and renovation of this building. Just people giving because they wanted to give. So if you have any questions about that, you can uh, see me afterward, or there's a sheet next to the donation ball that explains a little bit more of the details so you could check in with the bookkeeper. Basically, any way people want to develop a relationship with Common Ground around supporting it is really okay. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, but if you do want more information, you can just check with any of us in the office or with Kevin, who's our program host tonight. So I want to go back to our wonderful book that we've been looking at now for, I think, a year. Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart. We're getting close to the end. There's a picture of Ajahn Chah. Many of you have seen this. <laughs> Some of you have the book and are reading along. If you want to find out more about it, you can listen to all the talks. I'm basically giving a talk on each chapter. We're on chapter 33, and it's called Venerable Empty Scripture. And it's really based on this story from the time of the Buddha, where there was this scholastic monk, quite famous at the time of the Buddha, I guess in charge of 18 monasteries, renowned for his capacity to remember the teachings and our talk about the teachings in very skillful ways, but he didn't practice. He didn't actually apply the teachings. So one day, he was in the area of the Buddha, decided to go pay his respects to his teacher, the Buddha, and uh, as he walked uh, to meet the Buddha, the Buddha said, well, hello, venerable empty scripture. <laughs> and so they interacted a little bit. And after a while, he left, and the Buddha said to him something like, See you later, venerable empty scripture. 
And uh, as you might imagine, because he's a smart person, uh, he thought, hmm, why did the Buddha call me Venerable Empty Scripture? That was not his name. <laughs> and uh, yes, he thought about it because he was smart. He kind of dawned on him, oh, you know, I've been a little bit transfixed by my the quickness of my mind, the sharpness of my mind, the ability of my mind to sort of organize information in really clever powerful ways and regurgitated back out and impressed people. People were in awe of him, evidently, frightened by never wanting to sort of contradict him because he was so sharp. And he kind of got it and uh, maybe felt a little uh, some humility, some good, wholesome humility. But the trouble is, now he wanted to practice. He really wanted to apply the teachings. Because, you know, in Buddhist cultures, there's a real... This is not a small issue. Uh, like in the East and traditional Buddhist cultures, a lot of, especially lay people, but also monastic, both nuns and monks, they really emphasize either the study, like being able to, re, uh, to memorize and repeat the teachings, or they really emphasize supporting those who practice. What we call, it's like related to the Don I was talking about, but just this very deep cultural pattern of really wanting to support the monks and nuns um, who are practicing and developing merit, it's called, like uh, good qualities, like a charge of goodness that then will support them, they imagine, in future lives. This is a, one of the, the teachings that if you're very generous, and especially generous towards those people who are practicing, which is seen as, like, if you're going to support anybody, those are the people to support you have merit. So this teaching like that you actually have to apply the teachings is uh, it, it's relevant because it's very easy. Like even us in the West, there are a lot of people, I've met a lot of people who know a lot about the teachings. I mean, they've done a lot of good study and they really get it on a conceptual level what the Buddha is teaching. And they can talk about it. And, it, and even on that conceptual level, it's really helped their lives. You know, you can't help but sink in to some degree if you're really reflecting on these teachings. But they're not that interested in actually uh, training the mind in accordance with the teachings, like really practicing. So, the, so he, get, he gets this, that he has to practice, but there isn't anybody who wants to teach him because they're all frightened of this guy. So it actually tracks down this novice monk. So somebody's not even a fully ordained bhikkhu or Buddhist monk, but just a novice, usually like in their first year. And they're sort of checking it out. Like, do I want to be a celibate monastic for the rest of my life? Or at least for a period of time. So that's a novice. He found a novice, but this novice was fully enlightened. So a really wise person. And... Uh, so the novice wasn't sure, you know, because this is this famous guy. He had beautiful robes that people had offered, lay people had offered him. Wasn't sure. He was really sincere. So he said, okay, I want you to put on all of your beautiful robes. And he did. And he said, I want you to walk into that bog. And so this well-known teacher just did that. He walked right into the bog, got completely covered with mud. And then the little young novice said, okay, come out. And then he gave him a teaching. He said, okay, this guy's sincere. I'll give him a teaching. So he said, just like a 
lizard hiding in a termite mound. If you haven't seen them, they're quite big termite mounds with six holes. And you wanted to catch that lizard hiding in that termite mound. What you would do is you somehow take out a commission five of the holes and then watch one very carefully. So just so, do that. You have six holes. We all have six holes, right? We have seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, and thinking. So these are the six sense gates in the way we talk about it in Buddhism. These are the six ways we know the world. There is no other way we know the world. There is no world outside of smell, taste, touch, sight, sound, and thought. Anything you imagine is outside of that is just a thought. That's one of, one of the ways we're sensitive. The mind is sensitive to thought, sight, smell, touch, the rest of the five physical senses, whatever they are. So, when we practice, like some of you sit, you bring your attention to the breath, maybe at the nostrils, or you feel the rising and falling of the abdominal wall, or you just maybe generally feel the body sitting, or you hear, open to hearing. So, what we're doing is we're neutralizing the five physical senses by becoming steady with the breath, steady with the body sitting, steady with seeing, steady with hearing. You may just take one of those things, right? But if you get really steady with it, knowing the breath coming in, knowing the touching sensations as the breath goes out, knowing the touching as it goes in, there's still sound, there's still sight, there's still smell and taste, whatever the fifth one I haven't mentioned. But because the mind is just attending to this, it has a neutral relationship with all the other sense experiences, right? So, and it has a neutral relationship with the breath because if we're trying to control the breath or think about the breath or judge, oh, that's a good breath or a bad breath, we can't actually be present with it. So if we're just present with the breath going in and out, the whole thing, the whole mind settles down. There's calm, there's an inner happiness, we call this samadhi, a steadiness. And then in that steadiness, with that steadiness, we can watch the sixth hole. That's where we're going to catch the lizard. Because ultimately the practice comes down to having insight into the mind. The mind knowing the mind. The mind understanding the mind. Seeing in the mind what it hasn't seen before. Because mostly, even though the mind is clearly the most relevant thing in our life, it's amazing how we haven't considered it to be worthy of investigation. We just aren't that interested in the mind. Unless, you know, you been around these kind of teachings for a while. I'm not saying that we're you know, completely not interested in mind, but it just generally doesn't get on the radar screen, like that it's relevant, which is really amazing. Because it's, it's only through the mind that what we call the world is known. And the way the mind is completely affects the world we experience. That we probably at least know intellectually and probably have had some direct experience how the kind of mind completely affects how the experience is known or interpreted or felt. So, we neutralize the five physical senses not by running away from them, but by steadying the attention with one of them or a combination. 
but we're studying the attention. We're learning to be equanimous. We're learning to connect and sustain. So it's not about distancing. It's about studying the attention with the breath, with sound, with the overall experience of body sensation. Just being there moment by moment by moment by moment. Of course, there will be habits of wanting to control or fix or make the experience this way or that way. But we notice that that doesn't help, so we keep releasing that. That's the training part. So we're training in the steadiness of attention with one of the sense gates or one of the sense experiences, like seeing or hearing or breathing. Right? We get really steady, really calm. Then we realize that all the five physical senses have been neutralized, meaning they're not a problem. They're not, now when we have samadhi, what we call samadhi, which you could call like balanced, steady attention. So when we have samadhi, and there's that inner sense of stillness, wholeness, steadiness, clarity, and whatever arises in terms of body sensations, or sounds, or sights, or smells, or tastes, it's not a problem. It's just comes and goes. So the mind's like hands off, just letting sight be sight, sound be sound, touch be touch, smell and taste be smell and taste. Then we're there in that steady way, and every once in a while, the thinking mind or the you know cognition, mental activity will just happen. But now we can catch that lizard because all of the five physical senses are neutralized because of the steadiness of attention then it's very easy to see them, relatively speaking, it's very easy to see the movement of the mind. To see that mental activity is just mental activity. When we're reacting to different sense experiences, and then thinking about the sense experiences, and then reacting to our thoughts about the sense experiences, and having other sense experiences, it's very difficult to tease out what the mind is. We're experiencing the mind all the time, but we don't think we are. Because we always assume that mind is me, and what I'm actually experiencing are the sights or the sounds. So we have to gain that steadiness with the experience of embodiment, the five physical senses. Neutralize them through the steadiness of attention and wisdom. Wisdom really works with the mindfulness to just let sound be sound, sight be sight, sensation be sensation. We're right there in the middle of these senses these sense experiences, so we're not like running away. Because otherwise, you know, taking really good drugs would work. We just like get so disconnected. But clearly, when we're disconnected from the body, there's no way we're going to learn anything about the mind. Because if we disconnect from anything, we're disconnecting from everything. There's no way to disconnect from one thing without disconnecting from everything. Because it's an interdependent world. We can't, like, do that. I mean, we can, you can train your mind to disconnect from experience. We call that jhana practice, where the mind uh, basically takes the stillness of the mind as its object, and it has some real distance from sense experience. And it's a very healing, profound kind of meditation, but doesn't change doesn't transform the mind. It, it's very useful, very supportive practice. 
So, and people who have a talent for that and have the time can really develop their practice, and it's a good thing to develop. It's just basically developing what we call concentration in meditation, deep states of uh, absorption and stillness. But ultimately, then we want to use that refreshment and stillness we get from deeper states of concentration to just be steady with the sense experiences, not distancing ourselves from sense experience. So when we're allowing sight to be sight, sound to be sound, sensation to be sensation, then we're allowing mental activity to be mental activity. So all the conditioned patterns of the mind aren't being suppressed. They're allowed to move. You can't learn about the conditioned mind, the habit mind, by suppressing it. You have to let it do its thing. You can't catch the lizard by making it hide somewhere deep. You have to give it a hold to come out of. Then you can catch it. You can learn something about it. And a lot of people use their meditation a little bit like a club to beat down their mind. You know, I'm going to be with my breath. And you see that by sometimes we're, we're really, the face is tight because we're trying so hard to suppress the mental activity, because it's bothering us. We don't want to worry. We don't want to think about that thing anymore. We don't want to plan one more time. We just want to break. You know, so we concentrate on our books, or we concentrate on our TV shows, or we concentrate on the breath. But that kind of concentration isn't helpful. Deep states of concentration do not come from tense, tense effort. They come from a very relaxed interest in the meditation object, a very persistent, relaxed attention. Persistent, but relaxed, not forgetting. And so that's that steadiness that I was talking about. We need enough steadiness so that we neutralize the five physical senses. They're there, the mind is clearly aware, but the mind doesn't have a problem with the touching, the physical sensations, with the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, and the tasting. It has equanimity with the five physical senses. And we stay there in that nice, steady, calm experience, aware of the different sense experiences, or just using one particular one, like the breath going in and the breath going out. We're there in the steadiness of attention. And then when the mind does whatever it does, then from that point of view of steadiness, that wise, steady attention knows the activity of the mind. And what does it know? It knows that th that activity of mind is impermanent, like it comes and it goes. And it knows that whatever that mental activity is, it's not satisfying. It doesn't, however nice of a thought it is, or interesting of a thought, or mental activity it is, that it doesn't provide <coughs> a lasting satisfaction for the heart. All it is is a tease. Or Joko Beck calls it the promise that's never kept. That's how she summarizes our mental activity. As a promise that's never kept. It looks interesting, like when we think about, oh, I could go on this, go to this place for my vacation, or I could do this, I could solve this problem by doing this. But it's like, it looks like it's substantial, but it isn't actually, because it isn't actually that life that we're imagining. It's just a thought. It's just mental activity. So it looks like it represents life, or it's life, but it isn't really life. But this is life, knowing that there's a thought. 
knowing that there's mental activity. But it's confusing. So, but the steadiness of attention allows us to th see thinking for what it is. Oh, it's just a thought. It's impermanent. It's something that comes and goes. It's unsatisfying. Ultimately, it's unsatisfying. At, m at best, it's a tease. It looks juicy. On the surface, it's juicy. Underneath, it's not that flavorful, not that substantial. And it's impersonal. We really see that from the steadiness of the mind, we really see how thought, all mental activity, moods, it's just that. It isn't Mark thinking that thought as we conventionally think is true, that I'm thinking that thought. It's just a thought that's arising due to causes and conditions. There is nobody, in a permanent sense, behind that thought arising. Even though that's what we tell ourselves all the time. Now you can check that out. But to check that out, to have that insight, you need the steadiness of attention. Which is why we work so hard at this practice. That's why we sit for every, every day, if we're lucky. We put in the time. We come up with a half an hour in our busy schedule, or 45 minutes or an hour, most days of the week. We try to get on retreats from time to time. Because there isn't really, for most people, given the busy lifestyles most people have, you won't have very deep insights unless you cultivate a steady, a steadiness of mindfulness. You have to cultivate that. And the best way to do it, it's not the only way, but the best way to do it is to put aside some time every day where you create the optimal conditions for this training. A quiet room, a quiet space outside. We have no responsibility. So you can, like I said at the beginning of the set, you can really put down the to-do list. Because for this 30 minutes, you've told yourself, you've made the resolve, I don't have to do anything. I'm not a parent right now. I'm not a lover. I'm not a citizen. I'm nothing. There's just things being known. That's what we're training. The steadiness of things being known. The breath coming in is being known. The breath going out is being known. Sound is being known. Sensations of sitting are being known. Ah, mental activity is being known. Ah, mental activity is being known. That's, we're in the knowing. Like in the Thai forest tradition, they call this the one who knows. We're becoming the Buddha or the Buddha. They use this mantra, Budo, Budo, but it really means the one who knows. Bud is the root for awaken or awakening or awakenness. That clear, uh, presence that has no agenda but to know. Not to know in order to be free even. Just to know. Just to understand, oh, it's like this. So usually mindfulness is hooked up in the, in the discourses of the Buddha with Wisdom, or um, uh, which sometimes is de uh, translated as clear comprehension. So mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mindfulness is the part of the mind that remembers, oh, this is happening. And then clear comprehension understands what's happening. Really gets, oh, this, it's just a thought. It's impermanent. It's just something that came and went. Right? I mean, just think for a moment how ephemeral a thought is. You know, just say something to yourself like, in my case, I'm 55 years old. It's like, that thought just, was just a thought. Where is it now? Well, yeah, but I said I'm, but you, that's another thought. That's not that old thought. So thoughts are very ephemeral and you can really notice that with the steadiness of attention, you really see 
even really important thoughts like, I'm really bad. You know, we have that thought sometimes, right? Or we think, I'm so much better than the rest of you. <laughs> and those thoughts feel so substantial, but when we actually look with the study attention, we realize how insubstantial that thought is. It's unsatisfying and it's impersonal. And it's just so ringingly obvious when the attention is steady and we're completely oblivious to this truth when our mind is distracted, which is the way that it normally is. So we really have to respect the training. If we don't train in steadiness, we don't really see what we haven't seen before. When we're just, when we have a normal mind, conventional mind, we just keep seeing the same things we've always seen, the same thing everybody else has seen. And we're constantly sort of reinforcing each other's delusion. So to step outside of that cultural, what the Buddha would call the cultural flood that's sweeping us all along, where we're all been programmed to understand and live and think in very particular ways, which always inevitably cause stress in the heart. So to break that cycle, there's one thing that can break that cycle. If the problem is misperceiving due to superficiality and distractedness, then it makes so much sense that the way you break that cycle is you cultivate mindfulness, which is the opposite of superficiality and distractedness. I mean, that's literally the definition of mindfulness is non-distractedness, non-superficiality. Really, the clear comprehension is the non-superficiality, and the mindfulness is the non-distractedness. Mindfulness remembers, oh, it's like this now. And then clear comprehension, it's like digesting, oh, it's like this now. Because we're sustaining that, it's like this now. And then wisdom comprehends, oh, oh, this is how it is. So there's the initial recognition that this is happening, but initially we think this is happening to me. You know, so we're taking it personally. But as we comprehend it, we see things are changing and they're impersonal. They're coming and going. Any kind of grasping doesn't make any sense. It's unsatisfying to grasp, to hold, to take things personally. It doesn't make sense. What makes sense? The only thing that makes sense is to let go. I'll just read a little bit from the chapter and then open it up to see what people have to share with the group or questions that come to mind. So this is Achen Cha. He says, if we don't know the truth of these things, it's like tightening the screw all the time. It gets tighter and tighter until it's crushing you and you suffer over everything. When you know how things are, you loosen the screw. In Dhamma language, we call this the arising of disenchantment. You become weary of things and lay down the fascination with them. If you unwind in this way, you will find peace. People have only one problem, the problem of clinging. Just because of this one thing, people will kill each other. All problems, be they individual, family, or social, arise from this one root. Nobody wins. They kill each other, but in the end, no one gets anything. Gain and loss, praise and criticism, status and loss of status, happiness and suffering. These are the worldly dhammas. These dhammas, these activities of our life, engulf worldly beings. They are troublemakers. If you don't reflect on their true nature, you will suffer. People even commit murder for the sake of wealth, status, or power. Why? Because they take them too seriously. They get appointed to some position 
and it goes to their heads, like the man who became headman of a village. After his appointment, he became drunk with power. If any of his old friends came to see him, he'd say, don't come around so often. Things aren't the same anymore. So I'll just leave it here. So we have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people. Thoughts you have, experiences from your own practice you'd like to share? Just questions that come to mind from what I've said. Yes, Jim. Is it Jim? I don't understand how just because thoughts are fleeting means they're impersonal. Yeah, but the thing is, seeing the impersonality in thought is something that it's not, uh, it's not like a logical deduction. You just have to observe. So, so I would just hold it as an open question. What is thought? And it's like, clearly it's relevant. You know, thought is a relevant activity of our life. So it makes sense that we'd want to <clears throat> develop a mind that could observe thought and get to know what it is. And so the question is, if you do that, what, what do you come to understand? That's really the question. So what I would do with the Buddhist teachings like that thoughts are impersonal is I just hold it and then investigate. And that's how the Buddha would talk. He would say, well, come and check it out. Because we want to become, we don't, I mean, believing that thoughts are impersonal is just a thought. And it's impersonal. <laughs> or is it? But we want to be interested. That's the important thing. And it's really hard to, because one of the thoughts that is repeated so frequently that it doesn't even occur for the mind to recognize it is the thought that this is personal. It's like that sense in the mind that this is happening to me is just like repeated all the time. So it's very appropriate when people hear this teaching, it shouldn't feel intuitive. It should feel counterintuitive. That's the appropriate response because of the way that the mind is conditioned. And when people have insight into this, like they, they're doing the practice steadily and observing the mind in a, in a steady way over time, and they, and then they see what they haven't seen before, it is always surprising. In fact, that's one of the characteristics of insight. <coughs> when the mind sees something it hasn't seen before, it doesn't matter if they're like really intelligent about the Buddhist teachings. I like really get this teaching on emptiness or impersonal nature of things. When it when it's seen directly, it's shocking. Because it's just not the way our mind is conditioned to believe the world is. So it's it really shocks the mind. It's surprising. Even though we know that's what the Buddha's been teaching, you know? It's just it's shocking to actually see it. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, say your name. Uh, Doug. Hey, Doug. What is the what is the break line between just sort of cycling, kind of grasping thoughts, and planning in a very skillful way? The mind is imagined. It seems like they're 
there should be a place for, for thinking and planning about things that are going to happen in the future. What is that starting to become problematic? Yeah. So did everybody hear Doug's comment about planning? And where is the line between where planning is <clears throat> necessary and wholesome and when it becomes neurotic? You didn't use the word neurotic, but a problem. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly there's a place in the world for cognitive activity. It's really useful. And one of the reasons for cognitive activity is like it allows us to have community. We couldn't have community without family life community life without cognitive activity because, you know, being able to to reflect on what's happening with language then allows us to sort of find this common ground where that we can share meaning, basically. Um, and it also allows us to organize our experience, which you probably mean by planning. So cognitive activity is in itself a problem. It's the misunderstanding, it's the Relating to cognitive activity or taking it to be something that it's not. That's, I think, how the Buddha would characterize the problem. So, um, that's why initially it's really useful to have a formal time every day, if possible, and then longer periods of time when you can go on retreat, where any thoughts that arise, or almost all the thoughts that arise on the retreat, we're not concerned, uh, we're not sort of we're in a situation where we don't need a lot of cognitive activity. It's like, I can plan that later. It's not that that planning is wrong, but not now, honey. I can do that later. I don't have to worry about that problem. There will be plenty of time to worry about it later. So we have the, we've set apart this time where we know we don't have to do cognitive activity so that when the cognitive activity arises because of the force of habit, you know, so much momentum, then we can literally observe it as a, happening in the moment. It is just that happening, that mental happening, that mental activity being known. And so then we can we can do that observation and begin to have insight into what that mental activity is and what it isn't. So then even though so then you have that formal time, but then during life we sometimes plan too much too. So even not when we're sitting that we want to plan when we don't need to plan. So then, what I, what I look at, like uh, I remember Shokni Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, said once, you know, when I thought about something three times, I say that's enough. <laughs> now that's not so easy. Maybe when your mind is trained, but something like that, like to really look at the underlying motivation for planning this one more time or reviewing this one more time. What's really going on? And so we're looking. We, we go from the content that the mind is bringing up, and we're looking at the underlying flavor or feeling underneath it. What is the emotion? Is it being driven by fear? Or is it some wholesome emotion like wanting to take care of our life? You know, that's a fine motivation to plan. Like just that compassion, like wanting to organize my life, take care of myself and everybody else. So I'll think this through. But how many times? Because then it might be more like, I don't like that life is uncertain. So the planning, the obsessive planning, is really about reinforcing a view that if I try hard enough, the natural uncertainty and insecurity in life will be overcome. But it's never overcome because it's in the fabric of life for it to be insecure and uncertain. So we plan, we do our duty with the understanding that life is uncertain and insecure. And that's okay. It's always been this way. 
and we don't have to get tight because life is uncertain. We can relax. It doesn't help to get tight. It doesn't make it more secure or certain because we've gotten tight. Next time. Yeah, Tom. Um, um, the hardest thing for me has been to um, be relaxed and sort of secure uh, around lots of people. And their reactions are often are often uh, upset. They're upset with me for not engaging these these things that I'm not almost interested in. And uh, it, it, it is it's kind of hard to watch sometimes uh, other people having you know difficulty with with me. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing. One thing that really helps, of course, is uh, the when we cultivate a steadiness of attention and we're regular in it, <clears throat> it provides an underlying sort of resiliency, that kind of flavor. It's almost like uh, an inner trust develops. And we trust, and it's hard to know what word to put here, but we trust life in a way that's not about the particular conditions. And that, that sense of trust that comes from insight and just the steadiness of attention itself, it can be somewhat uh, like it, it stays with us even when we're not meditating. It's just there. And then what that does is it allows us, it gives us more options when we're in difficult situations. One of the options is, uh, one, of the, um, one of the things it gives us is we're okay with people having a hard time with us. That's one thing it does. And the other, other thing it does is we're also okay to play along with life, to participate in the moment, even if it's not what we want to do. It gives, so that, those are two options you could have in that moment, like to be really okay if people are having a difficult time with who you are. Because you understand that in this moment, there's an integrity about who you are. You're not trying to harm anybody. And people have to sort of take care of themselves. You know, they have to learn how to be okay with the situations that are arising and their experience. Like, I'm arising and their experience. And they have to learn to be okay with that. And that's their responsibility, not my responsibility. And that inner peace, that inner steadiness, really gives us that option. That I found this interesting. It also gives us the option like, I don't have to be dependent on doing what I want or what feels comfortable for me. So I may feel comfortable not being social, for example, in a particular situation. But I don't have to take that preference. There is a preference, but I don't have to take the preference personally. But I don't have to deny it. There is that preference, but I don't have to take it personally. I can allow my heart to conform to their preferences, maybe because there's compassion or maybe there's just, uh, yeah, just responding appropriately in the moment. Because who knows? And that it's really nice to be nimble, like sometimes to just be okay being who we are and how we are in that moment and letting everybody else just deal with it. And, uh, and sometimes to really allow our heart to sort of let go of our preference. There's this great line or um, section of the discourses 
where there's this big conflict in the Sangha. The monks are fighting over a really stupid kind of thing around the rules. And uh, the Buddha kept telling them, listen, you got to put this down. And they just said, oh, you don't worry yourself, teacher, you know. We'll take care of this. And the Buddha just, in his own way, I forget his exact words, but basically rolled his eyes after trying a couple times and left and went on to the woods and practiced for a while by himself. Um, and then went to, I don't know if, how this happened, but, you know, went to see some harmonious practitioners. His cousin, Anuruddha, who was a well-known monk, and he was practicing with some other monks. And he asked, well, how is it that you're practicing so well together? And Anuruddha said something like, well, when, you know, when I'm with these other people that I'm practicing with, you know, living in community with, you know, I see that I have this preference and that they have this preference, and I ask myself, well, why not, why not do what they want? Like, a, a real question, not like a sacrifice, but why do we favor our preference over somebody else's preference? I mean, where does that come from? It comes from attachment to preference. It's totally okay to have preferences. You know, I like ice cream more than I like mashed potatoes. It's okay to have that preference, but it is not okay to suffer over our preferences, right? Why would we want to create suffering just because we have preferences? So when there's really a choice between mashed potatoes and ice cream, and there's no suffering involved, like, you know, there could be consequences to choosing ice cream each time. Well, potatoes are pretty starchy too, so I, maybe collard greens and ice cream. <laughs> And uh, so we don't want to be attached to the preference because sometimes our preference isn't the right choice. Just because it's our preference doesn't mean it's the right way to respond in the moment. So anyway, that's that's my response to that. Yeah, it has to be quick. We're almost out of time. So I, I was trying to articulate this past 15 minutes, but how do you deal with not wanting to feel like you're being pushed over or you're being stepped on all the time by practicing being or letting people are being open to what other people want. Like, as a way, it really feels like a lot of people are taking advantage of that flexibility or that yeah. sense. And my reaction is to go, stop stepping on me. But wouldn't that steadiness reveal uh, kind of a fierce, uh, like a Sarah Palin, like this mama grizzly, right? <laughs> the inner mama grizzly that wants to take care of yourself. Right, because that's a natural force, like not wanting to be pushed around. So why wouldn't the practice reveal that natural force, that inner mother that wants to protect, right? Like, no, that's not okay. See, this is the thing. We don't want to have a fixed idea of what the practice looks like in terms of how our personality expresses itself in the world. The, the practice itself is... Um, it's creating these degrees of freedom that allows us to respond appropriately. And the thing is, <clears throat> this life is always right here in the middle of our experience. So we, you know, when we respond compassionately, we're, how could we not include this life? Why would we not include this life any more than any other life? That would just be some skewed preference that my life doesn't matter as much as somebody else's life. But in Buddhism, or just in practice, it's like all lives are of value, this life too. And we have a particular responsibility for this life. 
in a way more than other lives. That could be neglectful, but it's not, we don't want to neglect this life too. So if you're finding that, that the heart is yielding too much, then I, you want to use the steadiness of attention to see what view, what attitude is there that's not yet been seen. Because there must be something going on that uh, maybe a fear of asserting. Some people like, you know, just to make it simplistic, half of us have a lot of delusion around the assertive parts of the personality. And some of us, the other half, have uh, delusion or misunderstanding around the receptive, yielding aspects of personality. And we really need to set this free. And this, you know, sometimes people talk about this in terms of feminine and masculine qualities. But the point is, to be a skillful human being, we need to bring out all of these qualities so that we can actually respond to the different moments of our lives. Because sometimes we need a powerful, assertive response. That's what life is asking for. And sometimes it's asking for a powerfully yielding, receptive response. Yeah, it's good to bring that up. Thanks. We'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words, take a breath together. Appreciating the teachings and the community we get to practice with, all of the women and men who have practiced before us, all the living beings in their busy lives who did their practice, shared it. And generation by generation, it ends up here. Now it's our turn to do the best we can. Become wise, loving, responsive, creative human beings. And to continue to set these teachings in motion. Make them available. So may this be solved.